Good morning, West Park. Happy New Year. You glad it's all over with? Get back to routine. Kids go back to school tomorrow, I think, don't they? Not, yeah, parents are going, amen. Yeah, that's good, good routine. There's something wonderful about routine. Uh, let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day and for this year ahead. And we do uh, look forward to what you have in store for us as your people and as your people here at West Park. And uh, so, Father, would you superintend our time this morning? And uh, we invite you to uh, sit upon your throne and we will sit at your feet. And so we listen uh, our hearts are attuned to you if we come this morning with distractions uh, from our week and from the world around us. May you quiet our hearts and uh, bring our minds into focus and uh, may we hear from you. Uh, Father, help your servant this day. Uh, I need your help and you know that and I ask for it. And I ask this in the name of our King Jesus, amen and amen. For the next uh, few weeks that I'm with you, I'm only here uh, for another few weeks. I'm not here next week. My son is actually uh, be, being installed as uh, the lead pastor of Church of the City, which is a church in Guelph. And uh, so I have been invited to go and preach the, uh, preach the induction service there for him. And so I won't be with you next Sunday, uh, but then I'll be here a couple more weeks. And, uh, and then my uh, parole is over and I have to go back. And uh, so, um, but these few weeks that I'm with you, what I want to do is I want to sort of set the compass for 24. Uh, and we've sort of chosen this title, More in 24. Uh, uh, next year we'll be still alive in 25. I don't know what it'll be. Uh, but, but I want to talk to you about some areas of our life, very practical considerations. And so uh, my normal approach is to teach the Bible exegetically and turn and teach through a book. I'm going to do some topical teaching, so it's a little different than what I normally do, but I hope it'll be helpful to you. Uh, but I want to talk about uh, this morning, I want to begin with more in 24 financially, financially. And uh, when I was a teenager back in the mid-70s, anybody here a teenager in the 70s? Yeah, a few of you, most, most are dead, I guess. Um, when I was a teenager in the 70s, uh, I was into rock and roll music. Yeah, I hear the baby crying already. Uh, and uh, me, uh, myself, and uh, my friends were into a, an album called Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Does anybody remember that? Yeah, a few of you are, yeah, some of you are like this. Okay. That album was on the Billboard album charts for 714 weeks. It was just a kind of a phenomenal album. And if you flipped over to the second side, the B side of the album, first song was a song that if you get the beat stuck in your head, it stuck in your head and it started like this. Boom, 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 boom. And the first word in that song was money. The song was about money. It was about money. Let me read you the lyrics. Money, get away. Get a good job with good pay and you're okay. Money, it's a gas. Grab that cash with both hands and make a stash. New car, caviar, four-star daydream, I think I'll buy me a football team. That if you had money, life would be bliss. Now, if you were a teenager 20 or so years later, you were humming along to, if I had a what? If I had a million dollars, 
which you know is supposed to be a benchmark uh, for a large, a lot, uh, a lot of money. Do you know the biggest lottery jackpot? You know what the biggest lottery jackpot of all time was? Two billion dollars. It was in a, the U.S. about two years ago, but you have to pay the tax first, which took one billion dollars. <laughs> That wrecks it. What are you going to do? You're all stuck with a billion. You lost a billion. That's going to be a smaller party, right? But in every generation, there are stories and art and poetry about money. Every generation, to greater and lesser degrees, and I would say greater degrees, it seems, is enamored by and to some extent intoxicated by money. What has been called the ultimate form of happiness and freedom has also been called in the Bible the root of what? All kinds of evil. My dad used to say money doesn't bring happiness, but it sure brings a better kind of sorrow. So what about this year ahead? What about this year ahead? Have your best year financially. Now, I know that we've got two ends of a continuum here this morning at West Park. We, we have people here this morning, it may be you, every month you're up against it financially. There's more month than there is money. And times are tough. I get that. I I talk to people who are up against it all the time. At the other end of the spectrum, there are some of you here today and you have much more money than you need. Way more money than you need. And all the rest of us are somewhere probably in the middle of that continuum, along that continuum. So you might be saying, yeah, I'm one of the struggling ones. What are you going to say? I don't have any money to worry about, to think about, to do anything with. Well, everything I'm going to say this morning is based on this premise, okay? It's based on this premise. Listen to this. Money is a blessing or a curse not based fundamentally on actions, but on your attitude towards it. Because actions always flow out of attitudes. When we were raising our children in our home, we had some family mantras, some family principles that our kids knew were sort of Uh, significant in our home. One of our principles in our home was this. Great attitude, great latitude. Great attitude, great latitude. If you have a great attitude, we'll give you lots of latitude because if you have a rebellious attitude or an angry attitude, that's going to uh, extract itself and manifest itself in angry behavior and rebellious behavior. And so... Uh, This morning, what we're going to talk about is how you think about money, your attitude towards it first and foremost, and then I want to give some application. So that's where we're headed this morning as we talk about this issue of more in 24 and how can this year be a better year financially. First application, I hope you have your sermon notes, or first principle I want to give you in the application. The first one is this. We must first and foremost realize money is a tool and not an end. It's a tool in our lives and not an end. And so let me give you the application. If that's the principle, here's the application. Very simple, very rudimentary. Am I wisely using this tool in my life? Am I wisely using it in my life? Now, the the verse that speaks against money to being an end, of course, Ecclesiastes 5.10 He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's all vanity. And you may know that uh, Howard Hughes was asked one time, how much money do you need? And he said, I just need a little more. Not happy with it. 
And I think we need to accept the reality that both wealth and poverty can both be soul-destroying when we think about money. If you move from it being a tool to a right, I'm, uh, if this is a right, then that can be very corrosive to the soul. If you go from viewing it uh, as from a tool to a badge of honor, right? And, and, and a person's worth never in God's mind determines the worth of a person. In our world it does. A person's worth determines the worth of a person. If you don't believe that, then watch what people do when Elon Musk shows up somewhere. They want to touch him. They want to see him. They want to talk to him. And so we have to be very careful. For every verse in the Bible that tells us the benefit of wealth, there's 10 verses that tell us of the danger. And both these attitudes that I've mentioned here, when we we think that Money is a right, not a a tool. When we think that that money is a badge of honor and not a tool. Both of those can create in us the same outcome that is corrosive to the soul. And that's a word that's very ubiquitous in the world in which we live. And that world is entitlement. I'm entitled. That can create that mindset. For the person without, they can easily fall into the trap that they are owed. They deserve And that can be demotivating and it can create all kinds of difficulty. For the person who has, the wealthy person, the fact that they have, it can create a sense of arrogance and and that they are required to be shown deference. Both of those things are entitlement and both of those are terrible to the soul. We can identify ourselves as poor or rich, depending on the setting, right? Because in whatever setting we're in, some settings, there's a lot of people in front of us and some people, there's a lot of people behind us financially, right? And that can be very corrosive. So fight against that kind of thinking, entitlement. It's money is simply a tool, it's not an end. I have met very godly people who didn't have anything. I have met very godly people who had very much, and the opposite as well. And it's not about the amount of money, it's about the attitude towards the money. Listen to this statement. I love this statement by G.K. Chesterton. I've always been a a fan of G.K. Chesterton. He was a great thinker. Here's what he, he, listen to this statement. He wrote, I would maintain that thanks are the highest form of thought. Then he said this. And that gratitude, and that gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Let me say that again. Gratitude is happiness doubled by wonder. Probably about 10 years ago in my life, I realized I needed to be a more grateful person. And the way the Lord manifested that is I I realized that there was some men who had invested in my life and I had benefited from. And so I thought, I need to reach out to them and let them know the benefit that their life has bestowed on me, and I did it. And it was great, it was just wonderful. And so view money as a tool and not as an end. The second principle I want you to know, and this we talked about a little bit uh, three or four weeks ago, for money to be a blessing to you, it must freely pass through you. Did you hear that? For 
money to be a blessing to you, it must freely pass through you. Now here's the application, let me give you the application. To do that, you must keep your hands open and your heart soft. You must keep your hands open and your heart soft. Hands clenched quite tightly, right? I gotta hold on to what I got. You know, I need this. You know, that means that you will not be a generous person if your hands are clenched tight. But there's another problem with that. When you hold your hands like this, God can't put anything into them. God only can bestow upon you your open hands and your open heart. My parents, I grew up in a non-Christian home, but I grew up in a wonderful home. Uh, You know, my parents made the cleavers look dysfunctional. Some of you have no idea who the cleavers are. But my parents consistently taught us that all we had must be held with an open hand. My parents were very generous. We didn't have lots. We were sort of middle-class folks. But my parents held everything with an open hand. And if, you, and if we didn't, we lost our joy and we lost the blessing of that. Things that are acquired as an end to us in and of themselves become idols. And then we become cynical with our idols. It's not, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about the widow who, who gave from her heart and a few weeks ago in a message and I told you that she threw her whole heart in, not just her offering in. Because she held things with an open hand. In an open hand. Acts 20, 35, let me give you a verse. In all things I have so, shown you that by working hard in this way we must keep the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus who himself said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. We we must have things simply that pass through us. Uh, I'm I'm always interested in uh, the discussion of people who demonstrate great philanthropy. Now, you've probably noticed, uh, if you follow the news to any extent, you'll note that uh, some of the Ivy League schools in the U.S., there's a great uh, ruckus there because of the issue of some of these uh, major Ivy League school presidents not speaking out strongly against anti-Semitism, and then there was this issue with the uh, uh, slavery in the U.S. and a complete mess, and now many of these major, major donors are withholding their gifts. And uh, so there's a lot of talk about who these philanthropists are and how much they give and all of this. And, uh, you know, what's quite interesting is, as I read this, and I read of some of these massive gifts, and I have noticed that often these very uber-wealthy people who give these huge financial gifts are giving somewhere around 2 to 3% of their wealth. Yeah, they give a $50 million gift, but they may be worth 4 and $5 billion. And I think that, uh, you know, if you, if you are a, a mom here this morning and you're a single mom raising three or four kids, now some of you are going to, you know, somebody's going to email me and my email is neilchotai at westparkchurch.ca. I'm, I, I hold this loosely. I'm not convinced that tithing is a New Testament principle. As a man purposes in his heart, so let him give. If you hold to it as a New Testament principle, I have no problem with that, okay? But I do believe that if you're here and you're a single mom and you're raising three kids and there's more month than there is money, I don't think God's gonna be mad if you don't give 10%. 
If you're here this morning and you've got $5 million in RRSPs, then you better do better than 10%. Okay? Right? So that's meant to pass through you, not to you. Right? You cannot take it with you. I preached on this one time when I was pastoring, and I borrowed a hearse from the local funeral home, and I hooked a U-Haul trailer to it, and I parked it in front of the church. <laughs> Serious, I did. And everybody came in and saw this U-Haul behind this hearse. And they knew I was talking on money. You can't take it with you. But you can send it on ahead. You can send it all on ahead. I love the story. You know, you think of these great uh, philanthropists. I love this story. I read this story uh, a couple years ago. Little church in North, North Dakota. Binford, North Dakota. Anybody ever been to Binford, North Dakota? No, because you probably can't even find it. This little church, nondescript church. Nobody knows about it. And they're having the Sunday morning worship and this elderly, elderly lady named Mary during the worship, she gets a little lightheaded and she falls back, bonks her head on the pew, knocks herself right out. She doesn't look good at all. She's lying on the floor. They call the paramedics. They come. People are praying. That Mary's gone, sort of ashen gray. They're like, this is it for Mary. She's, she's gone. She's gone. They load her onto the stretcher. She's sort of in and out of consciousness and she motions to her daughter and, and they go over and the place is completely quiet because they're thinking Mary's telling her daughter the final thing she wants her daughter to hear and Mary looks up at her daughter and she whispers to her, my offering is in my purse. Isn't that amazing? That's open hands. Uh, one way you can stoke your generosity, folks, listen to this. One way you can stoke your generosity is to do this. Measure your wealth by the things that you cannot buy. By the things you cannot buy. Let me give you a few of those. A clear conscience, a positive outlook on life, a good reputation, good judgment, creativity, ethics, forgiveness, justice, wisdom, friendship, integrity, self-respect, memories, more time, compassion, Good manners, which have gone the way of the buggy whip. Honor, tolerance, talent, real love, a sense of humor, maturity or youthfulness, righteousness, courage. You can't buy anything. You can't buy any of those things with money, but they do make you wealthy. Number three, number three. Money must be acquired with integrity and honesty. With honesty and integrity. Now, I think that's fairly obvious, but I tell you what, it's not that obvious in the way people live their lives. So the application, the application, am I cutting any financial quarters, corners in, in any area of my life? Well, you know, I've never stole anything. Do you give your employer a full measure of work for the time he pays you? Do you show up a bit late? Do you leave a bit early? Do you fritter away your time while you're at work? That's cutting a financial corner. If we accumulate wealth in a way that is dishonest and lacks integrity, it tells us that we are actually held hostage to money. And eventually we'll do all kinds of things and, and, and that will get worse and worse and worse. There's a popular saying, you know, and I hear people say it all the time. I hear Christian people say it all the time. And they say this, 
Let your conscience, what do they say next? Let your conscience what? Be your guide. Let your conscience be your guide. That all sounds good. Sounds good when you post that on Facebook and all those kinds of wonderful places. But the problem is your conscience it has to be galvanized by some value system. And because the conscience needs to be shaped, for a Christian, that, that knowledge and, and shaping of your conscience is by way of the word of God. And if you violate your conscience and you don't repent, your conscience becomes increasingly hardened or calloused. The way the Bible describes that is the hardness of the what? The heart. And if you want a verse for it, here's the verse, 1 Timothy 4.2. Through the insincerity of liars, and this is so powerful in the ESV, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences were seared. Isn't that a great statement? You sear your consciousness. Herbie was a little boy growing up in Indianapolis. Herbie, he might have uh, grown up to be maybe an angel, but his mom died when he was just four years old, and his father was a terrible man, and his father was a bully, and he turned Herbie into a bully. By the time he was in sixth grade, he was a brawler and he was a petty thief. At age 20, he stole his first car. He got married, but he was violent and that ruined the marriage. After he and a buddy held up a grocery store, Herbie was sentenced to 27 years in prison. As he walked into prison for his first day he, at the Indiana State Prison, he looked at the, the admitting officer and he said, by the time I get out of here, I will be the meanest person you have ever met. Eight years later, he did get out, and then he joined with some other guys, and they began to rob banks. And he told a reporter, all my life I wanted to be a bank robber and carry a gun. Now it's happened. I guess I'm about the best bank robber there ever will be, and it sure makes me happy. He was a psychopath, vicious, vicious person. You might not know Herbie by the name that his friends called him, but by his full name, John Herbert Dillinger. Mary's little angel grew up to be the meanest man you ever saw. And not long before he was murdered, shot down in an FBI ambush to stop him, John Dillinger said this to a friend. Listen to this. I can trace my life of crime back to when I was nine years old. I stole a quarter from my old man's wallet. I was scared that he would find out and he would beat me. But in fact, I got away with it. And after that, stealing became very easy. A 25 cent theft had seared his conscience. Money's talked about four times more uh, often in the Bible than most anything because God is warning us about searing our conscience. And I would suggest to you, friends, I would suggest to you that the reason why money is called the root of all, kind, all kinds of evil is because there's very few, maybe nothing that I can think of that allows you to have your conscience seared so easily as money and money handled unethically and without integrity because money does not have a face to it necessarily. Right? 
It, it, it's, it's not emotional, it, it's not personal. Money is a thing, and it's easy to sear our conscience when it involves a thing and not a person. And that's why it becomes the root of all kinds of evil, because it allows you to, sing, to sear your conscience, which then affects you in all kinds of other areas in your life. And of course, as Albert Camus wrote, life is the sum of all of your choices. Today you'll make many choices, thousands of choices. Some choices you make today you'll weigh out very, very carefully. But most will be impulsive or unconscious. You won't even hardly even think about them. They won't even warrant a second thought. But none of your decisions today will be unimportant. And when it comes to money, massive outcomes are the consequences, often by momentary decisions. That's why the Lord Jesus, Mark 8, 36, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And sadly, I have been around businessmen who I felt were doing that very thing. They were making a go of it in major significant ways, but their soul was evaporating. 1 Timothy 4, 2, remember that. Liars whose conscience were seared. Number four, this might be one that you're not going to expect, but hear me out on it. Number four is this. Poverty is an issue of friends as much as it is finances. Poverty is an issue as much about friends as it is finances. What does that mean? You want to be rich? Ask yourself this. Where can I be a blessing to someone in need today? Where can I be a blessing? Where can I be a blessing? Uh, Proverbs 15.22 tells us that without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Or there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, some translations say. I love the uh, statement by Aristotle, a friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. A friend is one who comes in when the whole world has gone out. Henry Cloud, Christian psychologist Henry Cloud maintains that one half of counseling would evaporate if people had a close, close friend. Isn't that interesting? A close, close friend. I've traveled to some of the poorest countries on earth my first uh, 11 or 12 years of ministry, I was involved in missions ministry, and I led a mission organization for a number of years, and so I, I traveled a lot, probably, I don't know how many countries, a lot of countries, some of the poorest places on earth. You know what? Uh, one day I had the, this sort of epiphany. The Lord gave me this epiphany. In some of the poorest countries on earth, people, well, let me, let me give you the Western world, North America. In North America, when we live in community, we're protected by fences. You go to some of the poorest countries on earth, people aren't protected by fences, they're protected by friends. They don't build fences. We build fences, right? You go to any subdivision, first thing they do, fences. I want to wall you off, I want to keep your kid, your dog, your hamster out of my yard. I'm going to put up a fence. You can protect me. In some of the poorest places, people are rich because their lives are infused with friendships. And they're connected with other people. I, I met a pastor about, uh, it was right before COVID from uh, Colorado area. And uh, we got talking about churches and church. And uh, I, a, they, he got telling me about his process of membership at his church. 
they have a number of things you have to do to become a member. One of the things you have to do to become a member is to go and buy five bags of groceries and distribute those to five families in your neighborhood in need. It's one of the conditions of membership because they want to instill in their people that relationships, if you're a kingdom person, are profoundly important. Interesting, isn't it? This uh, could be your best year yet. Financially, because you're really struggling and you may need to journey with some people who can help you and, and help you plant your feet on new ground. I read a story, I'm not an agricultural guy, somebody's gonna tell me this isn't true, but, but anyways, I'll read it to you. About a farmer in the Midwest who grow, grew award-winning corn. And every year he entered his corn at, a state, at the state fair where he lived, and every year he won first prize for his corn. And one reporter asked him, how do you do this? Year after year you win the corn, the best corn, and he said, well, the way I do it is simply this. He said, I share my seed with all of my neighbors. And they, the reporter said, well, why would you do that? How can you do that? Because they're also entering their corn in the same competition. And he said, well, you know, the wind actually will pick up pollen from the ripening corn and swirl it from field to field. And if my neighbors grow inferior corn, that will cross-pollinate and steadily degrade the quality of my corn. If I am going to grow good corn, I must help my neighbors grow good corn. And if we're going to be kingdom people, we have to help one another. A rising tide lifts all boats. Number five. I need to keep going. Number five. Money must be managed daily and deliberately. What are you going to do? Here's the application. What are you going to do today to realize a better financial future? You know, you know many times people make grand financial plans with sweeping changes and, and adjustments and tax-saving opportunities and, and investment plans. Yesterday, my wife and I uh, talked about retirement and when, you know, we financially would be in a place we could retire. I'm on the Freedom 95 plan. And, uh, no, actually, I, I could, I, I have enough money, I could actually retire next week, as long as I die on Thursday. Uh, <clears throat> So what are you going to do daily and deliberately? Uh, right before Christmas, I was driving into London. It was early Sunday morning. I was really tired. And I thought, I'm going to grab a, another coffee. I usually get a coffee when I leave Cambridge, you know, kind of drink in the car. And I thought, I'm going to get another coffee. So I drove into a coffee shop in the area that's not a coffee shop that I normally go to because it's fancier than I am. So I drove in. And they had a little sign there, you know, with these, these special Christmas-type coffees. And so I said, hi. And first of all, I was a little nervous because they wanted to know my name. And I said, I, I'm not looking for a friend. I'm just looking for a coffee. But they wanted to know my name. Okay. And I looked at this little sign and... I said, yeah, I, I, that thing looks good. Give me that, that thing there. And they said, oh. And, and then they, they asked me, first of all, they don't speak English. Because the sizes and all these things are not in English. It's, it's a bit of a, you know, a, a cross-cultural experience. Because I go by medium. And then they say, do you want this venti, grande, macchiato? It's not English. I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know. So yeah, it was very strange, you know. 
I was in there one time, and, and my son's with me, and he says, why don't you get a flat white? And I said, I don't want pancakes. I, but that turns out it's a coffee. Anyway, I digress. Anyways, I, I order my little coffee, and I drive around, and they go, hi, Steve. And I go, hi. And I hand him my five bucks. And then I noticed in my peripheral vision, his hand was still out the window. And I said, this ain't my kind of coffee shop. And I said, oh, I owe you more? Oh, yes. And he was like, he was surprised that I didn't realize that I owed him more. So it was six bucks. Now, if you have your, some, some of you now are sliding your Starbucks under the seat, aren't you, right? I know, I can. If you buy a $6 Starbucks every year and, and do every day, five days a week, and I'm not begrudging you, okay? But I'm just talking about daily and deliberately because most people don't find themselves in difficulty financially because they bought the 72-inch TV, okay? I mean, but if you buy a $6 Starbucks every day and you do that five days a week for five years, you know how much money it is? $10,000. Now, I'm not begrudging you to do it. If that's your deal, do, do that. But you see that these little daily deliberate acts, they do add up. They mean something. They mean something. And so take a moment, you know, in the next week or so and say, you know, what am I going to do to have a better year financially, to manage daily deliberately? Maybe it's, you know, I, I don't need... The, I looked on my, my credit card bill and there was all these streaming services. I'm, not, I'm, I'm like, well, who am I? I never watched the TV. You know, my kids got me signed up for, you know, Hulu. What's a Hulu? I don't, I'm not a Hulu. What is that? You know, and all of these things. I'm like, what in the world? Every month, there's all these charges on my credit card. What are you going to do? What are you going to do to daily and deliberately make for a better financial future? Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. You have to be deliberate about your finances. You know, when it comes to money, tell your money where to go. Don't ask it where it went. Tell it where to go. Don't ask it where, where it's gone, where it's went. You know, the old saying, money talks. and Mine usually says goodbye. <laughs> so you have to be daily and deliberate. Realize your money is a tool, not an end. Are you using it wisely? For money to be a blessing, it has to flow through you, not just to you. Keep your hands open and your heart soft. Money must be acquired with integrity and honesty. Are you cutting any corners in your financial life? Poverty is an issue of friends, not just finances. Where can you be a blessing and make someone wealthy this week? And money must be managed daily and deliberately. What can you do today, this week, for a better financial future? Let's pray. Father God, Father, we are a people who live in a country that is immensely blessed. Father, I know some here are struggling. I know that. And at the same time, we do have nets that help to catch us and social services and all that. And so we're grateful to live in a nation where there is the opportunities that we enjoy. But let's never, Father, have our minds, have our consciences seared so that we're insensitive to others around us who struggle. And Father, may we be faithful with what you bestowed us. It is simply a tool. It's not an end. And may we use it wisely for the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.